Isn't that a great song? I love that song. I love Boston. And it was one of those songs that my dad used to play over and over again in the car. And I don't know if you're familiar with this genre, but it's called dad rock. Have you heard of this before? Dad rock. This defines any sort of music that your father would play over and over and over again, typically from a band of all males, the music that they listen to in college. Dad rock. And so a happy Father's Day to you. Uh, We're just so glad that you decided to join us this morning. My name is Sawyer Trapp. I'm our student ministries pastor here. And because Matt has been out of town for the past two weeks, um, out in California working on his um, doctorate, which is really exciting. So he's doing well. He talked to me the other day and he said it was a wonderful experience. So you get me this morning. So I am almost a dad. Uh, Sarah and I are due here very closely. I have a countdown on my watch. We're looking at 46 days, 46 days until our due date. So it's very exciting. But I remember so many of those days driving around with my dad in his, in his truck, whether running, running errands, going to the hardware store, uh, picking up stuff for dinner, and he would always be playing the same music. And so eventually one day I had to ask him, and I said, Dad, mix it up, play some different music. And he said, you know, this is the music that I connect with. And I think that's true for a lot of us, is we each have a genre of music, maybe it's dad rock, maybe it's a different sort of genre that we just connect with. A music genre that we just feel, we resonate with. But I think that's also true with our worship. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Those moments in our lives where we look back on, where we, where we have seen God move, where we've heard a worship song that just resonated with us, connected with us like our favorite genre of music. But how worship shapes our lives and can actually give our life purpose. Because that's what we've been talking about in our Ecclesiastes series. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You too, probably another example of dad rock. But why do we worship? Obviously we know who we worship, God, but why practically do we worship? Does it give our lives any specific meaning besides something to do on a Sunday morning? Or is it something more than that? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you'll join me, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We've been moving through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've looked at seasons. We've looked at work. We looked at wealth. Today, we are looking at what value worship and religion practically gives to our lives. So if you want to join me, Ecclesiastes 5, it starts off like this, starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. If you've joined us over the past couple weeks or watched our sermons online, you know that Solomon is a straight shooter. He does not beat around the bush. Right off the bat, he is saying people are going to worship and to offer sacrifices without even knowing that they've done something wrong. And it's really easy for us to criticize people like that, right? People that come to the temple to offer a sacrifice, not even knowing what they've done wrong. Doing something out of obligation, out of tradition, when in reality there isn't any heart in it. 
But although it's easy to criticize this person offering what Solomon calls the sacrifice of fools, I think we often have the same problem. We've grown up in church. We feel obligated. It's just what we do on a Sunday morning. We gather together as a church body to sing songs together, to learn more about God, to pray, and then we go about the rest of our day. It's just what we do as people who follow Jesus, right? But I think throughout this passage, Solomon is going to give us three important clues into what worship is not. He's going to use negative examples to shape and expand what we believe worship is. And I think in this first passage, Solomon is saying worship doesn't happen by accident. Worship doesn't happen by accident. Just because we are in a space where worship is taking place does not mean that we are worshiping. How many of you have ever run a marathon before? Anybody? A couple hands out there. Okay. I am slowly but maybe surely working towards running a marathon. I'm building up my speed. I try to run every once in a while, but I'm just so busy. And so I lose my stamina. I used to be, I, I was pretty close, eh, let's say I could run like 10 miles. Now, the other day I went out running, I barely got like three. But so, hands up again, how many have run a marathon? How many people decided to do that the day before? Really, I'm so surprised, right? Well, of course you're not surprised. Nobody goes out, signs up for a marathon the day before, and goes out and runs 26.2 miles. It's just not going to happen. Because running requires effort. It requires patience. It requires perseverance. And it requires a lot of training to build up the muscles, build up the lung capacity, build up the stamina to actually run 26.2 miles. That's a long distance. So if you have run a marathon, props to you. But in the same way as we're not going to go out and run a marathon tomorrow, if we've never practiced, we've never had the preparation the intentionality to run a marathon, we're not going to worship God by accident. We're not going to worship the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe like this. As Solomon says, we have to guard our steps. We have to check our heart, evaluate where we're at, and actively choose to worship God. Our worship requires intention. It doesn't happen by accident. And so he continues on in verse 2. He says, Do not be quick with your mouth and do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Once again, Solomon is not out there to make friends, right? He's like, you guys, you're saying too much. You're relying on your words. God is in heaven and you are not. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've used this phrase before, because I said so, right? Mom, why do I have to do this? Dad, I don't want to do that. Because I said so. Because you are the one in a position of power and have the choices to make to raise up your child. They are not, at that point, at a young age, 
the main authority in their own lives. And if we're honest, none of us are. Even if we are grown up, even if we are in our old age, none of us are the authority of our own life. God is. God is in heaven ruling and controlling over all things. And as much as we might believe it sometimes, we are not. And this pushes on another thing that worship is not. Worship is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the band up here. It's not about the people running the sound in the back. It's not about this building. Worship is about God. Worship is not about you. And you might be saying, well, of course, Sawyer, worship is not about me. I'm not worshiping myself. I'm worshiping God. But I think if we're really, really honest with ourselves, if we do some personal reflection, I think we often make worship about us. We make worship about our preferences, our song choices, our opinions, and we put stumbling blocks in the way of actually true and honest worship of God. So think about for a second what those stumbling blocks may be. If you find one of these resonating with you, then maybe it's worth taking some time to look at how you're actually getting in the way of worshiping God. One of these stumbling blocks, I think, is tradition. Tradition is valuable. It's useful. It connects us not only to the global church, but to the church of the past, of history. But I think if we get too caught up in doing things exactly the same way, doing things as they've been done in the past, then tradition can often turn our worship back onto us, into what we desire, into what we want. And perhaps for you, it's obligation. I think we all, me included, go through times in our life where we just show up to church and feel like we need to worship God because that's what we're supposed to do. Because we always have done it that way. Because that is what we do as followers of Jesus or because your parents or your spouse or your family has dragged you here and that is what you're supposed to do. But if we're worshiping God out of feeling obligated to, then we're actually putting our feelings before true and honest worship of God. Perhaps for you, it's reputation management. You want to be known as a person who worships God, a person who is at church every single Sunday, a person who is always cranking worship tunes in their car, rolling down the windows so when you're at a stoplight, everybody can hear what you're listening to. But if we're just worshiping God to maintain other people's image of ourselves, then we're actually flipping worship back onto us. And maybe, just maybe, you use worship as an opportunity to show off. Being a guitar player, I will be honest, I love playing guitar solos, right? Because everyone, whether they know it or not, is looking at me. And so I often make worship about myself too. This is not just a problem for all people. It is a problem for pastors too. So whether we're focusing too much on our opinions, on what we've done in the past, off the opinions of others, or the obligations that we feel from God or from being a Christian, 
we are actually flipping worship on its head and making it about us and our preferences, our desires, our needs. And so we were doing exactly what Solomon warns in this last verse. A dream comes when there are many cares. Solomon is not talking about a dream that you get at night where you're flying or riding a unicorn. No, he's talking about the dream, the goals, the wishes, the hopes that we have about our lives, the thing that we wrap our minds around day after day, the thing that keeps us up at night, the thing that we save up for. Whatever this is for you or for me, there are many cares associated with it. But just as we often make worship about ourselves, we flip our abilities, our strengths, and what we desire, the lens through which we worship God. We feel as if we need many words, that if we pray to God just a certain way, or use the right catchphrase or slogan, or have the best voice, that God is going to give us the desires of our heart. But hear this, we do not worship God because of what we want. We worship God because he is God. So we don't worship by accident, and worship is not about us. Um, I had the opportunity a couple weeks back to uh, be the officiant for one of my best friend's weddings. and It was one of my first yeah, official acts as a pastor, right? Outside the church, when we think of pastors, they're performing wedding ceremonies. And I've known Kenny, who was the groom, since we were about seven or eight years old. And we had grown up together. We had attended the same summer camp throughout every single summer. Uh, we had roomed in college our sophomore through senior years. We, this is a lifelong friend. And so to get the opportunity to perform their marriage ceremony, it brought me to tears. I, I, I was just so excited and blessed And weddings are just one of the greatest things, right? They're so celebratory. They're so hopeful. They're forward-looking. When we think about the words of vows, they're promises that are huge. Have you ever thought about this? I love, honor, and cherish you, no matter the circumstances, in sickness or in health, in richer or in poorer, till death do us part. Till death do us part. That is a huge, ridiculously large promise that is made through repeating the words that I said, and then basically they're married, right? Those vows are historical, they're timeless. We've seen them in movies, we see them as little kids play out their wedding fantasies, right? Have you ever seen this? We know these words, but I think we often forget the weight that they carry. The promise to love, to honor, to cherish that person, independent of what happens in the future. That promise is meant to still stand. That vow is a powerful thing. It's a promise made before God, before their future spouse, and before the people they care closest about in this world that they are going to do it to the best of their abilities. And Solomon is going to use the idea of vows, not made to a spouse, but made before God, as an idea, as an example of how we often fall short in our worship. Because vows are not things limited to a wedding ceremony. 
The original idea of a vow was a promise made to God. A promise made to live a certain way, to stop doing a certain thing, to dedicate your child to the Lord. A vow, in that sense, is even more powerful than what we do on a wedding day. And so as we look in the next few verses, think about the powerful claim that Solomon is making. So we're continuing in verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. Don't wait. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. For it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? For much dreaming and many words are meaningless. We can almost see what's happening. The person comes to the temple in a moment of frustration, a crisis of faith, a crossroads. They almost rush in knowing that they're so ready to bring their request before God. And in the moment of silence, in a moment of prayer, they make a vow, a promise. God, I'm going to start living for you. I want to follow your ways. God, I'm done with the ways of my past. God, I dedicate my life to you. Powerful, powerful words. And yet we see that despite this person's heartfelt promise, their passion, that they fail to fulfill it. And I think it's easy for us to criticize this person because, no, I never do that, right? But I think if we're honest, often we have done the same exact thing. We've heard a particular worship song that resonates with us. And in the moments of that song, we make promises to God. Or through a Bible study, or our community group, or at a retreat when we're separated from the problems and difficulties of our lives, and we can focus on ways God is working in our own life, we make promises to God. God, I'm done living that way. I want to live for you. God, I want to raise up my child in the ways that you would have me live. God, I want to deal with this situation in a way that honors you. And don't hear me wrong, those promises are important, they're valuable, but the proof is in the pudding. The proof is not making the vow, the proof is how we act that out. How we fulfill it. And Solomon, I think, is exaggerating here to prove a point when he says, well, it's better that we didn't even make the vow, right? I think he's saying, if we're not going to fulfill the promises that we make to God in the moments, moments that we really feel God, then are we actually living a life of worship to God? Because I think it's really for, easy for each of us to gather here on a Sunday morning to worship God and to check that box off for the week, right? To put it on our calendar and say, yep, worship God this week. Nailed it. But what Solomon and what God desires is a worship that is not just on Sundays. And that's the last thing that this passage reminds us, that worship is not just on Sundays. The theologian, writer, and Christian thinker, A.W. Tozer says this, if you do not worship God seven days a week, 
you do not worship him on one day a week. He wouldn't have said this through the mic, but that's a mic drop moment, right? There is no such thing known in heaven as Sunday worship unless it is accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and so on. If we are limiting our worship to the moments where we feel God the most or on a Sunday morning, we are not worshiping God in a way that is truly honest to who he is. Because if God is all-powerful, all-sustaining, all-loving, merciful, sustainer of the universe, then God is worthy of worship that goes far beyond what we're doing right here. Worship is not just on Sunday. Do you want to go to the next slide? How many of you know what this is? Hands raised? A couple people. It's kind of hard to see. Maybe it's better up there. That's the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican City. One of the most popular pieces of art in the entire Western world, done by one of the most well-known artists, sculptors, and painters, Michelangelo. You may not know this section, but I'm sure you know what's right here in the middle. The two hands of God and Adam coming together at the moment of creation. One of the most popular and captivating images of 15th, 16th century art. But do you know the history of this? I was a history history major in college, so I nerd out about history. So give me a moment. So this was all happening during the ideas of the Reformation. We're all floating around. It took Michelangelo a little over four years to paint this space. I had to write down the square footage because it's just so immense and impressive. It is 133 feet by 46 feet. The ceiling encompasses 6,118 square feet. That is an immense and massive space. And although popularly it's believed that Michelangelo laid on the scaffolding to paint all of it, he actually was in a much more uncomfortable position. So he was on scaffolding. This ceiling is about... Double, roughly, the size of the space that we're in. So he's on a huge scaffolding, and he is in a position basically like this. For hours, for days, for years at a time. Neck craned, on his knees, painting. You have to imagine that his body ached at the end of the day. He was in pain. To paint the entirety of the ceiling. It follows the narrative of the Bible talking through biblical stories and tracing the relationship of humanity with God. But although we hold up Michelangelo as one of the most impressive Christian artists ever existed, Michelangelo the man actually struggled and wrestled with his faith. As the ideas of the Reformation were around, the ideas of grace through faith, not by works, and a God that is loving, that is longing for relationship with people, Michelangelo was captivated by that. Wrapped up in the ideas that no matter what he did, he was unable to earn grace, to earn salvation. But that salvation was a free gift given by a loving Father through mercy. And Michelangelo wrestled with that throughout his entire life. 
struggled with believing in a God in the first place and certainly believing in a God that would give this amazing gift. But yet even Michelangelo is celebrated as a man who worshipped God, as a man who gave his life works to painting this, to drawing people into the biblical narrative and the story of God's relationship with humanity. But a man that wrestled deeply with faith and with who God is. But he was quoted at the, near the end of his life as saying these words. Many believe and I believe that I have been designated for this work by God. And in spite of my old age, I do not want to give it up. I work out of the love for God and I put all of my hope in him. You see, even a man who wrestled and struggled with faith and with God could near the end of his life say, I work out of love for God and I put not some but all of my hope in him. You see, the man that has drawn and captivated millions, if not a billion of visitors to see the Sistine Chapel, to be drawn and captivated through art into the story that God is crafting in the world, was honest, was authentic, didn't hide his problems from God, didn't hide his wrestling, but made them an integral part of his faith. Michelangelo didn't, worship, didn't limit his worship to God on one day of week, but did it with his entire life. And that's exactly what Solomon pulls us back into. In verse 7. If you have your Bible in front of you, you might have noticed that I skipped that last little section. Because that is the conclusion. The conclusion of where Solomon wraps up what worship is. What religion should be in our lives. Throughout this entire book, he said, work is meaningless. Toil is meaningless. Wealth is meaningless. Seasons come and go. Trying to control time is meaningless. But finally, in the fifth chapter of a book, God speaks through him and gives us what is meaningful. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. They're a puff of smoke. What do we do? Therefore, fear God. God should make us stand in awe and reverence more than the Grand Canyon. Should make us worship more than any other thing in our life should be our aim, our focus, the end of our life. Fearing God is not worrying about being punished. It's not too wrapped up in our preferences, our opinions, our desires. Fearing God is true worship. And true worship requires your entire life. Because your life is your worship. Your life is your worship. The entire sum of your life is the very thing that you worship God with. It's not just what we do here on a Sunday morning. It's not our preferences. It's not our desires. It doesn't happen by accident. It is our entire life. We cannot be people that limit our worship to one day a week. We must worship God with our entire week. Our entire 
selves. As the band comes forward, we do not have to do this alone, though. We do not have to do this alone. We have a perfect example of what true life worship is. Besides being our Savior on the cross, Jesus gives us a perfect example of what true life worship looks like. Jesus, from the very young age, was in his father's house. His parents find him in the temple. Don't you know that I would be worshiping my father? He prays. He pulls himself away. He's actively engaged with the people that he has called to disciple. He engages with the people in his community. He doesn't limit his worship to the temple, but draws others in to the captivating story of what God is doing. And he worships even to the point of death. As we see Jesus hanging on a cross with the sins of the world upon him, that is what true, honest worship looks like. And this is exactly what is said in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God longs for us to give our entire self our entire life as a sacrifice to Him because He has done the same for us. He's given us the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, conquering sin, death, and the devil and rising again three days later, allowing us to renew our relationship with God and truly and properly worship God for who He is. Worship, it doesn't happen by accident. It's not about you. It's not about me. It doesn't just happen on a Sunday morning. For your life is your worship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. That you've shown us mercy and grace immeasurably more than we can even imagine. That you draw us into the captivating story and kingdom that you are building on this earth, God. We thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made on a cross and the resurrection that brings us power, God. I pray that we won't go to worship accidentally, God. That we won't make worship about us. That we won't limit our worship to a Sunday morning. But that you would work through us and in us mightily to make our entire life worship of you in the ways that we act with other people in the ways that we interact with our families that you would draw us as fathers to be people who worship you fully and draw our families and our communities to do the same God that you would make our entire lives worship of you so that it is so evident the God that we worship in our lives that we draw others to do the same, God. We thank you. We love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
Church, we bless as you go out this week. We'll see you next week.